today's text is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is God's word. I love uh, John chapter 15. I've spent uh, a lot of time meditating through it. I think it's one of the most mystical and practical teachings Jesus ever gave us. And what's better is that he used metaphor. And I think metaphor is actually how we learn reality. I'm not really good at metaphor. My wife, Ashley, is very good at metaphor. So when we're trying to teach, um, this happens in community group, whenever in community group, and I'm trying to convey a teaching, she says, it's like this, and then everybody gets it, and I'm like so mad, because I'm like, I was saying that. But she says it in metaphor, and it makes sense, and it lands in the group. She does this with our, our, our daughter, too. She teaches her through metaphor, and I try to come up with metaphors, and they're always way too complex and, like, niche and no one ever understands them. So, but the metaphor is actually how we learn reality. And Jesus' hope was that this simple metaphor would shape how we view reality or how we see reality because what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here is true reality. Just like one plus one equals two, knowing that simple reality can actually help you navigate life better. It can help you deal with money and choose things at a store and code because it is reality. And what Jesus is saying is that this is reality, that Jesus is the vine and you are the branch and you must remain in him to truly do anything in this life. Jesus is saying this is reality. And if you believe it, like believing one plus one equals two, you will navigate life better. And what he means by this, on one hand, it's mystically beautiful and mind-blowing. And on the other hand, it's kind of insulting, kind of challenging. And the challenge of this passage is that you don't have inner light. We don't find ourselves by looking within. We don't know who we are by looking inward and inward in ourselves to find what's ultimately true. 
This is what Jesus is saying. Now, I know that people say that. People say this. I mean, especially like in, like in yoga classes or like in Peloton classes. or some, Always when you're working out for some reason or stretching or something, people always say about something about your inner light, your inner self coming out. And I mean, I know they mean well, but these people don't understand how family systems theory work or family boards and stuff works. It's like, no, I don't want what is come, what's in me to come out. Like this is... Not, I don't want that to come out here anyway, like in this class at all, because we know that's deep work that we do with therapists and stuff like that. The stuff that's deep within us coming out is part and parcel of like really deep inner work. And what Jesus is saying here is that light and life and love actually happen from outside of us, and they happen by being connected to an outside source. And Jesus is saying that that true source, that true vine is him, Christ. And if we are not connected to the vine, we have no life. We have no true vitality and we are not awakened toward the world and eternity. Now that's the challenge of this metaphor about reality. Now the mystical beauty is that if we are connected to Jesus, if we remain in Jesus and his words remain in us, we have God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit living in us and we are brought into the divine dance with God. We are brought into the life of God, fellowship with God, and oneness with God. I mean, think about this. This is actually kind of uh, incredible. It's insane that, that what Jesus is saying and teaching us is that we are brought into the divine. We are brought into the center of ultimate reality, Father, Son, and Spirit, what we call the Trinity, God, three in one, perfect relationship, perfect union. And through Jesus, we are brought into this mystical and organic union with God, a life that is so connected to God, so organic that the byproduct of life with God is fruitfulness born into the world. Jesus says, when you remain in me, you will bear fruit. Just by staying connected to God, we become fruitful. Now, how does this happen? Look at verse four with me, but I wanna read it from the message, Eugene Peterson's translation that he translated for his congregation years ago. It says this, live in me. This is how he translates it. This is Jesus' words. Live in me, make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Live in me. This is what Jesus is saying. Live in me, make your home in me. Now, fruit is just a byproduct. You don't make fruit. Fruit is the organic result of a branch just staying connected to the vine. You are not responsible for fruit. God is. By you staying connected, God bears fruit through your life. You are not responsible for fruit, but there is something that you are responsible for, and Jesus puts his finger on it here. You are responsible for living in God, for making your home in God. NIV says, remain in me. Jesus says, remain in me. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that you have both the ability and the responsibility to live in God. The ability, you can live your life in God, and even the responsibility, you must live your life in God. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you could do nothing. Now, what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about two dynamics of this, of making our home in God through prayer. As we make our home in God, as we've been talking about in this entire series, living our life with God in prayer, I want to talk about two dynamics that happen as we do this. 
two dynamics that will shape most, um, that will most shape a prayer life over a long period of time. As we're journeying with God in prayer, two dynamics that will shape our life with God. The first dynamic is the dynamic of love, if you're taking notes, the dynamic of love, and the second is the dynamic of honesty. I wanna talk about the dynamic of love in prayer and the dynamic of honesty in prayer. So first, the dynamic of love in prayer. And the first thing I wanna say about this is this. Prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. Now, you're probably thinking, why didn't you lead with that during this, this series? Why are you just doing this right now? We should have started the entire series with this. But prayer is really hard. To develop a life of prayer is, is really hard. If you have found yourself struggling to develop like a consistent life of prayer with God, as we've been going through the series, like, I want a prayer life. I want to have a prayer life. And I will be honest with you, as I've read books and have mentors and have people before me in prayer, I want the things they have. I want a life like they have. And I, so I thought about this too, but... Earlier this summer, as I began to study and prepare for this sermon series, I began journaling my experience because at that time this last summer, I had let the discipline of prayer in my life lapse a bit. I went on vacation, which always throws off my rhythms, especially with two young kids that were on California time when we were in Hawaii, so they woke up at like two in the morning or something like that. Like it was just really hard. And I was journaling as I was trying to develop and redevelop this prayer life with God that had felt like it lapsed, I journaled the feeling of frustration. As I began to journey into a prayer rhythm, I was writing this down as a prayer to God that I realized that, that I just feel frustrated. This is like really hard to do. And I, and I had this sense that as I realized this, that this is the exact same feeling many people would have as we were doing the prayer series, a feeling of frustration a feeling of being overwhelmed by the propensity of our distraction and our busyness. I think the most common thing I hear as a pastor when I speak to people about their lives with God is guilt. People have real guilt in their life with God. They feel like, I don't pray enough. I don't pray as I should pray. I feel guilty that I get distracted in prayer. I feel guilty that time slows down for me in prayer. So where five minutes feels like an hour. I'm like, it's just been five minutes? Oh my gosh, this feels like an hour. Our minds I feel guilty about your minds wandering in prayer or your eyes getting heavy with sleep in prayer. Prayer is hard. This quote has deeply encouraged me time and time again as I've, as I've, grown, I've tried to grow in my own prayer life. And the, prayer, the, the quote is from Ronald Roheiser in his book on prayer. It says this, quote, prayer is easy only for beginners and for those who are already saints. During all the long years in between, it is difficult. Why? Because prayer has the same inner dynamics as love. And love is sweet only in its initial stage when we first fall in love and again in its final stage in its final mature stage. In between, love is hard work, dogged fidelity, and needs willful commitment beyond what is normally provided by our emotions and imaginations. This is so important for you to grasp. First of all, this is just a great marriage quote or a great relationship quote. Like trying to stay connected and in love with someone at the beginning of a relationship or a marriage is, you don't even think about it. All of your 
emotions and imagination immediately kick in and, it's, and it happens. But, and I would imagine as you get super old, like the notebook old, and at the end of your life, love is easier then. But every time, everything in the middle, it's hard. And what Rollheiser is saying is this is the, 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 the inner dynamic of love that we have person to person is the very same dynamic that we have in prayer with God. Prayer and intimacy with God has the same interdynamics because because prayer is love. Love is at the center of the John 15 passage. Remaining, abiding in Jesus is all about love. John 15, 9, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Remaining in Jesus is remaining in his love. And love, this kind of love, of remaining in Jesus' love, requires duty. See, love starts to take on the same form as duty after the initial butterflies wear off. And you need to know this, both about human love and about loving God. At the beginning, at the beginning of my life with God, personally, it was like so easy to stay connected with God. It was all I thought about, that sort of thing. If you remember that initial stage of your life with God, this, it's easy, and it might get easy at the end when you become a saint, quote-unquote saint. But everything in the middle feels like duty. It feels like washing dishes and going to get something for your wife when you've just settled on the couch. It feels like saying no to something you wanted to do because of something that you have to do. Love feels like that. And I'm sorry that consumerism and sexual freedom and the American promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness might have ruined that for you, but love is a virtue and not an emotion. Virtues have to be developed in your interior life through discipline. And prayer will feel that way. Prayer will feel like discipline, like effort, like work. It doesn't mean it's not working, It just means it's working to shape you like working out shapes your muscles. It's sometimes painful and hard in the middle. And so if you found that developing a life of prayer is hard, it's because it is hard. If it feels like duty, it's because it is duty. So don't give up on it. Like, oh, I don't like it because it feels like duty. I don't want to be religious. That's how it will feel. And that's how marriage feels in the middle, to be completely honest. It feels like giving yourself to someone as in, with your will, not because you wake up and you're carried by emotion, because of your will, because of your commitment. And prayer will and should feel like this in the middle. Now, for some people, it might not. It might just be blissful. You wake up in the morning, you're hyper-connected with God throughout the day, just like, oh, I'm so connected. And that's amazing. And I think that's beautiful. And there's some people that have that grace. And I know people that have that grace, but for the rest of us, it feels like work. Now, what if you don't have the time to commit to this duty? You don't have the time to commit to this duty of love, of prayer, because another duty of love has all your energy, namely having young kids. I heard someone laugh in the back. Moms and dads of young children have some of the hardest time finding this kind of time for discipline. Working parents or non-working parents, it's still hard. If you are a parent of a young child, it is so hard to spend the time to develop uh, like uh, the duty of prayer. 
I was at a um, small um, uh, gathering of people who uh, were, when Tim Keller, the pastor, author, like spiritual like hero, uh, was in the Bay Area lecturing a few years ago, um, went to the small gathering, and he was, he was teaching on the spiritual life. It was beautiful. And at the end, he took questions, and someone raised their hand and said, um, how do you uh, develop a prayer life when you have young kids? And Keller said, what I tell my congregation is, just try to stay Christian. <laughs> That's what he says. I said, and he said, I'm a Calvinist, and I say this. Just try to stay Christian. Now, there was humor in that. Everybody laughed, but it, it kind of relieved something. Ronald Rollheiser was asked the same question of a young mother. How do I find uninterrupted time every day to pray to God and with God? To which he responded, raising small children, if done with love and generosity, will do for you exactly what private prayer does. Now he says, I have to be, I, have to, I, ha, I can't leave that unqualified. That would be dangerous. So he says, I'm gonna, let me qualify this. He explained that Carlo Corretto, one of our century's best spiritual writers, spent many years in the Sahara Desert by himself praying, like monastic life where you've, you've, you've left the world to be with God, to create inside of you an inner dynamic of union with God. And he once, Car- Carlo once confessed that he felt that his mother, who spent nearly 30 years raising children, was much more contemplative than he was and less selfish. He says, certain vocations, such as raising children, offer a perfect setting for living the contemplative life. They provide a desert for reflection, a real monastery. A parent who raises small children experiences a very real withdrawal from the world. The existence can feel very monastic. Tasks often remove a parent from the centers of social life and from the centers of important power. Parents can feel removed. And then Roheiser quotes, perhaps... More so than even the monk or the minister of the gospel, she, that is the mother or father, is forced almost against her will to mature. For years, while she is raising small children, her time is not her own, her needs have to be put into second place, and every time she turns around, some hand is reaching out demanding something. Years of this will mature most anyone." Now, fathers share this same inner dynamic, and I think the, the point is that when you don't, and um, when you're a parent, a young parent, and by the way, I taught a part of this years ago before I was a parent, and I wanted to do it again because I am a parent now. I'm, I want to teach this to myself. I'm saying this to myself, everybody. <laughs> this, is, this is real. See, when you, when you give your life to raising children or other vocations that that make you leave your, like your, the self-centeredness that we live under all the time. That's literally what prayer is supposed to do. It's supposed to move you from the center of your life and putting others, namely God, in the center of your life. This is what prayer should do. And what Roheiser and Carlos and Tim Keller are saying is that this is what, um, done right, this is what parenting can do. Now, I know there's a lot of guilt that parents have, though. Uh, last week, um, Bijan was here from Reality London, and he, he, he delivered, taught just an incredible sermon on Jesus being, the, being our intercessor, how he lives to intercede for us. It was, it was just remarkable. It was so good. And I went home and, uh, after church, and my wife, like, she was like effervescent and kind of 
like bubbly, and she's, that's not like her like disposition that n- normally. Not that she's like mean or anything. She's really nice if you know her. Um, but it was just different. It was like a different thing. And then the house smelled like banana bread. I'm like, what's going on in here? Like, what's happening? I walk in the kitchen. I'm like, hi. And she's like, hi. And she's like eating. Po- I don't know. It was just kind of a really beautiful scene. And I just like took a mental picture. And I'm like, I want to remember this forever. What's going on? And we're talking about this. And she didn't really connect this to that. But what she was saying was basically something was really unlocked today at church where I I didn't realize it, but I have felt so guilty as a parent because I don't spend enough time in prayer. And the guilt of that weighs me down to where I don't even want to pray when I do have the time because I feel too guilt, too, like there's, there's a backlog of stuff. And what what was taught at church was that Christ intercedes for us, that he's actually the one doing the work and doing and praying for me. And I never connected those two. I, I think I heard it, but I never really connected those two. It was so freeing. And as I was listening to her, I, I'm like, I, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of parents feel that same way. And I was reminded of, of having taught this to our congregation years ago about how parents, especially parents, feel this at certain parts of their life where they feel so much guilt. But that guilt is, every single one of us feels this guilt. In some way, our job is demanding. Our time is just, we have so many things to do. We have so much stress in our lives. We're living in a city that's literally just turning over people right now. Like there's just so much unsettledness in our city and in our lives right now. And we're like, I'm too busy. I'm too overwhelmed to pray. And when we say that, we feel guilty and it leads us in a cycle. And so... For that guilt, I believe that, that Jesus is offering us a better way to bring our, ourselves before him, to free ourselves from guilt. I don't think that what Jesus did on the cross and making our way to God, and we'll get to here in a second, um, includes this guilt. It actually removes this guilt. And this ironic, that's the very thing that keeps us from prayer often is guilt. The very thing Jesus came to undo Now, the dynamic of love makes prayer hard, okay? It just does. The dynamic of like growing in relationship with God, that dynamic of love makes prayer hard, but we shouldn't make it harder than it needs to be. Like marriage is hard, but what would make my marriage harder is if I didn't communicate with my wife. Marriage is hard, but what would make my marriage even harder is if I wasn't honest with Ashley, my marriage is hard, but would make it even harder if I hid all of my mistakes from Ashley. See, there are things in life that are hard, but they don't have to be harder than they should be. Prayer is hard, but it doesn't have to be harder than it should be, which leads to the second dynamic I want to talk about, honesty in prayer. Honesty in prayer. I read this quote that opens up a great book on prayer called where Prayer Becomes Real. It's a very good, very good book I recommend it to you. And the book opened like this with this quote. And it just really frames the entire book and it's very good. If you want a boring prayer life, if you want a boring prayer life, spend it trying to be good in prayer rather than being honest. If you want a boring prayer life, spend it trying to be good in prayer rather than being honest in prayer. See, when developing a life of prayer, many of us might turn to techniques how-tos of prayer, basically trying to get good at prayer. This is basically our goal, right? Our goal is like, I want to get good at prayer. If we were stripped it all away, like, what do you want? I think I would say, this, I want to be good at prayer. I want it to be something I'm a master at, like a Jedi of prayer. 
I like walk around. I'm like, I can just pray for things. And I'm just like, and with, I, I want to live in this sort of thing. I want to be good at prayer. And this is my temptation. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to be good at prayer. The goal is sincerity, honesty, reality. The goal is to live in reality. The reality with yourself and with God. The best biblical example of this I can give you is Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. It goes something like this. Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to a temple, the temple to pray, and one of them was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector, Jesus says. And the Pharisee, who is a religious leader, who has it all together religiously, stood by himself and he prayed something like this. God, thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and, and um, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who is also there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. I tithe. I give to my local synagogue. I give to my church. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I'm saved, that I'm not like these other people, that I know the truth, that I love my country, whatever, right? He just goes on. Like all the things that he does that he, that he loves. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his, his chest, his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, the, what, what, this par- what Jesus is teaching us in this parable is that this tax collector prayed in truth. He opened his heart to God, throwing himself on the mercy of God. He used his, the deep worries of his life and his fears, the fears that were in his heart, to come into God's presence. As a tax collector, he was probably shunned by his society. He was probably unclean before God. And he uses all of these fears to bring himself before God and lay himself bare for God. God, here I am, a sinner. Here I am, excluded from the life of Israel because I'm a tax collector. And I know that. Have mercy on me. While the the Pharisee used religious language and religious life to keep prayer tidy, to keep prayer detached from the messy truths of his heart. See, when when this Pharisee went to prayer, he didn't want to pray about the dark parts of his heart. He's like, how do I keep the facade up? Oh, God, you know what I do. I go to church. I read the Bible. I've memorized the Lord's Prayer. I've done these things for you. I tithe. I fast. I do all the practices, God. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I'm awesome or whatever. He tried to pray good, but he didn't pray honest. See, one of the unintended consequences of going through the Lord's Prayer like we did the last several weeks is to think that what God really wants from you is that you pray correctly according to a certain way. And so we, we, we talked about, this is how the Lord's Prayer is broken out, you know, week by week through the Lord's Prayer. And the unintended consequences might think, you might think, well, I have to pray that way. I have to pray according to the Lord's Prayer. And that's a trap in the end. The Lord's Prayer should help us bring our honest hearts to God in prayer. That's the point. When Jesus prays, he follows the same dynamic of the Lord's Prayer and he brings his heart before God. What makes being honest to God in prayer so hard? I mean, it's really, it honestly, it's really hard. Being honest to God in prayer is hard. It's also hard with people. Why, 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 do you, why do you fear being honest? Well, we fear rejection. We fear actually being exposed and seen. 
And so when we go to God in prayer, we, we fear that rejection. We fear like, if I actually told God what I really want, I'll get rejected. Because what I really want, he told me not to want, but I want it. I don't wanna say I want it. I'll say something like, I want your will. That sounds good. But what I really want is this thing, right? And we don't wanna talk to God about that. So we hide. Or it's too much work. We don't wanna be honest, because this is why when you turn to someone and say, you know, the peace of Christ be with you, how are you? And you're like, good. Why don't you say, oh, not good? Because it takes too much work. Not good, what's going on? I don't really want to get into it. I mean, it's just too much work. If I bring it all up right now, we're like in a thing and there's, we have to walk outside. I just got a lot of stuff. And we do this with God. Like if I actually were honest before God, it's just too much work. It's just way too much work to actually open my, the things I want to God because we might be there a while and I don't have that much time. So we stay on the surface because it's safer and it's quicker. Just so much safer just to recite a prayer. So much safer to go, to bring God like, well, what does God want to hear? He wants to hear all about himself. So God, you're good, you're awesome, you're powerful, you're holy, you're amazing, amen. You're like, that was a good prayer. You just told God everything he knows. Like everything, about, you just talk to him about him. But prayer should bring you before God. This is literally what Jesus does in his own prayer. He brings himself and his worries and his concerns and his disciples and you and I before him. And this is literally what Jesus does for us. Not only does Jesus teach us to pray more than teaching us to pray, he opened up for us a new and living, a new and living way to pray or a new and living way to draw near to God in prayer. Not through magical words, but through his blood. And this is what Hebrews talks about. Hebrews 10, 19. This could be a whole sermon and I wish it was, but it's not. But this is, this is, this is so good. This is everything. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Just that statement alone is kind of, again, this book is the, to the Hebrews, showing uh, Christ to the Hebrews, to people who were Hebraic. And so in and, and, and Hebraic understanding and law, you were not allowed to approach the throne of God only one person a year, and that person did not have confidence in approaching the throne of God, but fear and trembling. And it was smoky in there. And you would have a mediator. So you would have the high priest go, like, you go, I don't want to go. Like, I'm not going to stand before God. This is literally what they did to Moses. Moses, you, you go. I don't, we're not going. We're, we're too afraid of God. He's like thundering and lightning. And, and so people were afraid of God. For, for the writer of Hebrews to say, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, but that's, no one has confidence to enter the most holy place. Everyone's afraid of that. But Jesus does something different. He makes a way for all of our lives, in all honesty, to like literally go before the holiest place of God. And Jesus, this is spatial language. He made space for us. He made, he made his way in and said, I'm here, you guys come too. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you would think the next sentence is, be thankful. No, he didn't say that. He says, let us draw near to God. You think after all of this beautiful stuff that Jesus has done, you're like, and be thankful. But the author says, now, because he's done this, draw near to God. Get in there. Jesus has made a way for you to be in f before the living God with a sincere heart. Get in there with your sincere heart, sincere heart. Let us draw near to God with an honest heart, with honesty, 
with sincerity, with what's really going on in our lives, and with full assurance that we will not get smoked, that we won't die, that we'll actually get exposed. The reality of ourselves will be exposed to the reality of God, and we will be transformed, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, because we all go before God, honestly, with a little bit of guilt, and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, Jesus did not teach us to pray alone. More than that, he made it possible for us to draw near to God with an honest heart and made it possible that we can be there and have all the guilt that covers us when we don't pray enough or how we should pray to be cleansed from us. And the irony is that the guilt that we have when it comes to prayer, like not praying enough or not praying in the right way or for as long as we should, that guilt is removed so that we can draw near to God. See, we use our guilt as an excuse to stay away from God, but Jesus like, I remove that guilt so you can draw near to God without that guilt. This is why. Prayer is not a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. Only in reality can God change us. Only when we're honest with ourselves. True prayer is where we bring the reality of who we are into the reality of who God is so that we can be changed. See, the lie that we're tempted to believe and perpetuate in our prayers is that God is interested in only well-kept sort of things rather than the truth. So we don't tell God our current sins. Like if we're really struggling right now with a specific hindrance, a specific weight, a specific sin, a specific thing, we try to focus on getting our act together before we bring our sin to God. We're like, well, let me figure that out first. And then when I figured it out, I'll go, God, I did this thing and I confess it to you now, but I'm, I'm actually, I've cleaned up my act a bit. I've said no to a, a few things. I just want you to know, this is us trying to know God in our own goodness rather than the truth and the reality of our broken lives. So we should be, we, we can go before God and actually bring our current like struggles. Like currently I want this, God, and I'm currently I'm doing this and opening our lives to God. This is literally what Jesus made a way for us to do so that we can be changed. This is where real change happens. This is, the old, this is the whole like hiding thing in Genesis 3. Remember in Genesis 3, if you remember the origin story of, of Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve um, eat the forbidden fruit and they realize that they're naked and they hide and then God shows up and says, where are you? Does God say, where are you? Because he doesn't know where they are? No. And he says, why are you hiding? Is that because he doesn't know the answer? No. He's drawing them out, Adam and Eve out. This is... This is this is what God does when we encounter him. He draws us out so they can cover us, that he can redeem us, that he can change us. This is why Jesus opens the Lord's Prayer like this. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, that's interesting. That's really interesting. The father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus says, so then, pray like this. And he goes in the Lord's Prayer. Like, why in the world would I pray the Lord's Prayer if God already knows what I need before I ask him? And here's why. The father knows what you want. He knows what your fears are. He knows 
what you like desire, so don't hide. Don't cloak prayers in pretense of being seen like the religious leaders. Don't cloak your prayers in the pretense of babbling words. Show up to God in honesty. He already knows. Bring it to him in honesty. See, prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Prayer is not a place to perform. It's a place to be present. Prayer is not a place to be right. It's a place to be known. And prayer is not a place to prove your worth. It is a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. Would you stand with me as we pray? Would you open your hands to God in a posture of like receiving God or vulnerability or um, openness? Lord, here we are in all of our um, not so beautiful truth, things that we hide, things that we're ashamed of, And we want the light to expose it so that there's healing. We want to draw near to you, God. We want to bring our hearts before you. And we don't want prayer to be um, our, like, burgeoning prayer lives to be destroyed by our pretense or our dishonesty. So, Lord, would you make us honest in prayer before you? May we bring our lives before you and open up our hearts to you in honesty. Search us and know us right now, God. Search us and know us, Lord.